0: So, have you ever heard the term missing the forest for the trees? Raise your hand if you've heard that term, missing the forest for the trees, so you kind of understand. It's the idea that you can focus so much on the details that you miss the big picture completely. Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time discussing human sexuality. As, as I wrote to you guys on Friday, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 have a lot to say about human sexuality. They are a lot to say about purity and lust and physical intimacy, and singleness, and marriage, and divorce, and remarriage, and celibacy. And we're going to get into all the details of this stuff. But to start off this big section, I want to set the table today. I feel burdened and led to set the table, I, I dare say, by the Holy Spirit, I pray. With, with the big picture, with the crucial theme, we need to understand if we're not going to miss the forest for the trees I do believe the Lord wants us at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7 in particular, but 6 as well. We're going to come back and, and, and uh, circle the runway on 6 to pause and take stock of our larger view, the forest of God's gift of sexuality, before we look at the trees of specific behaviors. So without further ado, let's get into our text this morning. Would you guys follow along with me as I read the word of God? These are the very words the Holy Spirit gave his apostle for us this morning. And I believe they're there for us, right, Pm? Oh, oh, I, I, I'm still not used to not seeing that. Okay, here we go. Coming back to 1 Corinthians 6:13B through 20. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute, becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. As Paul tries to pastor this church out of sexual morality, he drops a theological nuclear bomb right in the middle of our passage today. Did you see it? It's hidden in plain sight. I say hidden, not not because God wants it hidden, but because functionally, our world, even our own hearts, hide it. But right there in the text, as Paul tries to explain why giving ourselves to prostitution, why giving ourselves to sexual immorality is so wrong, he draws our attention back to God's intention for sexuality. And he says something extraordinary. First, trying to explain the weighty result of any sexual union, he recites Genesis 2.24. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And at first you might think, yes, 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 Paul, I understand. Two become one flesh. I know sexual intimacy is for marriage, for one man, for one woman, for one lifetime. We should not give what God meant for committed marriage to a prostitute. I understand then in a flash so quick you can miss it he drops this 500 ton megaton bomb right away he says but he who is joined to the lord becomes one spirit with him he connects the one flesh reality of sexual union between men and women in genesis 2 with its parallel union in the spirit realm between jesus and his people did you see that Watch it again. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh next breath, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, in the gift of human sexuality, there is another gift. In the gift of human sexuality, there is another gift, a greater gift. God is trying to tell us through human sexuality about who he is and who we are to him. God is trying to tell us through human sexuality about who he is and who we are to him. Listen, if, whether you're single or married or divorced, whether you're young or young, or old, or same sex attracted, or struggling with pornography, whether you're on the, inc- wherever you are on in the increasingly turbulent highway of Western sexuality, the message of the Bible is that firstly, primarily, sexuality and marriage isn't mainly about your passion and desire. It's first about God's passion and desire for us. He's using it to tell us something. And we need to be able to see that. So I want to pray with you before we go any further. I want to pray. God, teach us through your words. Protect me and give me grace to protect and give grace to your people through preaching your word. I pray that we would see what you are trying to say to us today and that your Holy Spirit would work in power. And I trust that you will, Lord, because you are a good husband to your bride. And I pray that for those who don't know you yet, they would hear your love and your passion and your desire, your goodness and your glory, and it would attract them powerfully. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the big message here again is that in God's gift of human sexuality, there's a greater gift. Him telling us through it who He is and who we are to Him. Do you Believe that? Let's go back to verse 16 and to the very beginning of human sexuality. Paul says, For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. This is a quote from Genesis 2 at the very beginning of creation. And there, God creates Adam and says... For the first time since anything was created, before sin entered the world, God says, something's not good. It's not good. After saying everything's good, he says, this isn't good. Adam's alone. And so he puts the man he made into a deep sleep and creates from the man's own flesh, the first woman, Eve. Which means from man. Adam's reaction, or or woman, means from man. Adam's reaction is Astonishment, fulfillment, joy. It's it's the reaction of someone whose longing has been fulfilled finally. He says this, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the Holy Spirit says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. What is accented here and what is accented in 1 Corinthians, what Paul's doing so prominently, is union. Two becoming one the man and the woman, and Christ and his people. That's what 16 and 17 are saying without losing who they are individually to become one. This is what marriage is to be. This is what sexual intimacy is to be. And in Genesis 2, here at the very beginning, marriage and sexual expression are virtually synonymous. To be one flesh sexually in Genesis 2 is to be married in Genesis 2. And to be married in Genesis 2 is described as being one flesh sexually sexually. Of course, one flesh oneness is is a lot more than physical sexual oneness. It is to be emotional oneness, mental oneness, spiritual oneness. There is a real spiritual union that takes place when two become one flesh. And and this is why in the specific circumstance of our text, which we're not going to get into too much today, sex with a prostitute is much more than merely sex with a prostitute. So it's, it's more than just physical oneness, but it's not less than that. That's a concrete picture of something spiritual going on. God's purpose in human sexuality and marriage, two different beings, a man and a woman, come together in a beautiful fusion with all that they are that, they, that, that allows them to be still themselves, but now they are one. In all the ways, a man and a wife are to be one. That was his plan in the garden. The most concrete expression of which is physical intimacy. But this, this one flesh union called marriage, Paul says here, we see something more astounding about it. We see a picture of our intended oneness with Jesus. That's why he says right after saying in 16, the two become one flesh, he goes to 17. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul's even more explicit about this in Ephesians 5, where after giving instructions to husbands and wives, all based on Christ's relationship with the church, he drops essentially the same nuclear bomb again. Going back to a bit of Ephesians 5 here, follow me. We are members of his body, and he's speaking of the church being Christ's very body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says it explicitly. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I mean, he's screaming. (laughs) He's saying, listen, I'm telling you, marriage and sex It's a mystery that's profound because it's about Christ and his church, right? He he can't, he's shown all his cards. When we look at sexual oneness as God intended, we are to learn of Christ and his church. That's what he's saying. But what do we learn? What do we learn? So this morning, I want to draw out. Three aspects of what we learned. And next week, we're going go to go to a couple more. But today, we're going to do three aspects of one flesh oneness in human relationships and seek to show from the scriptures how they point to Jesus and his intended oneness with us. This will tell us about our sexuality. But more important, it will tell us about God and his relationship to us. It will tell us about human sexuality. But my my aim this morning, more than anything, more than learning about human sexuality, is that you would learn about God this morning. Because if we get God right, and what he intended, and and what he wanted us to learn about sex and marriage, about him, it's going to help us understand what goes on right and wrong in our human sexual experiences. But but that's, that's really shortcutting it. That's really short-sighted. I, it, it really is, I want you to learn about God. I mean, if, if, if you don't think a thing about how this applies to your marriage, or to your hopes for marriage, or to you, the marriage you had, if you only think about what this tells you about God, I will rejoice. And the job will have been done that I felt burdened to, to, to bring to bear here. So three things. First, one flesh, oneness is to be an exclusive oneness. One flesh oneness between a man and a woman is to be an exclusive oneness because God is our only God. In Matthew 19, speaking against divorce, Jesus tells us that from the beginning, Adam had only Eve. And Eve had only Adam. They were to cleave to each other. Only The Bible commands a man to be sexually faithful to his wife only, exclusively, and for a wife to be faithful to her husband exclusively. Polygamy in the Bible was not God's intention. We see that in in the garden narrative, and we see it in church history, how God has rejected that form. Man and wife are to share their sexuality with no one else. We can drive by it and miss it. Do not commit adultery was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Being unfaithful to your spouse meant you were to die. In the New Testament, Jesus clarified the seriousness and the gravity of this command for exclusive sexual commitment to your spouse only, and he brought it down to the heart level with an even greater penalty in view. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. God could not be more serious about marital sexual faithfulness. The penalty for heart adultery, not even bodily commitment, but in your heart, is the eternal flame of hell, Jesus says. That's how serious he is about sexual purity and, and faithfulness to our spouse. But why? Like, where does it come from? Is it simply because it's, it's how you be nice to your husband how you be nice to your wife? What's the very first commandment in the Decalogue? You shall have no other gods Beside me. Throughout the Old Testament, God declares himself the husband of Israel. Again and again and again. That is how he pictures himself, and that's how he pictures Israel. Husband and bride. It's not the only picture, but it's such a prominent picture. And in in, in one of the saddest and most unsettling passages in scripture, in Ezekiel 16, the Lord tells of his courtship and his marriage of Israel in sexual terms and in sad terms. Listen to what he says. This is how, this is God's heart, Lord. Help us feel and sense your heart in these words. Yes, Lord. From Ezekiel 16, this is Yahweh speaking to Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, That's sexual love. He's using a metaphor. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is God declaring his love and his marriage to Israel. But then God explains how Israel became infatuated with herself. And she went after other lovers, other gods, and other nations, even sacrificing the children of their marriage to Israel's adulterous lovers. He goes on, But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and, and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare. He means when I took you as my bride and gave myself to you. God is saying to Israel, my wife, you have cheated on me. You've abandoned me. James picks up on this very theme when he scolds the church for abusing each other for worldly lusts. In James 4, here's what he says to the church. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, we have to be careful here because he isn't saying it's wrong to be friends with people in the world. He's talking about living as the world lives in their fighting, in their biting, in their lusting. And then in verse five, he says, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. These are hard passages. These are sad passages. But I hope you hear in them something underneath that sadness and hardness. I hope you hear God's desire to have the exclusive place in your heart and that he is jealous for you. He's jealous for you. He's not looking for you to check off some box and come to church and check off some box and have your devotional life. And He's jealous for you to want him and to have no other gods before him, to have no other hope greater than him. Do you ever think of God as a jealous spouse, jealous for you? I'm not talking about a rageful, vindictive, petty jealousy, but a spouse who deeply longs for you, his wife, to be faithful, who is grieved to the core when she breaks her vows because she is his and he longs so for her. That's the picture we see again and again in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is speaking to a church that's being seduced by false Christs and false Gospels and false teachers, by by spotlights and big men on campus and celebrity theologians who don't adhere to the truth. And he says to the church, through the Holy Spirit, for I feel... A divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul's not feeling a divine jealousy on his own behalf. It, that's what he means by divine jealousy. The Holy Spirit in me is jealous for you because I promised you to Jesus as a pure bride. It's my job to help you be pure, to keep you pure. But then he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He fears that what happened to the first marriage, when Satan destroyed that marriage, may happen to his people as they're seduced by lies. The exclusive commitment... The God commands in marriage between a husband and a wife is to show us that God is to be our only God and Jesus is to be our only Savior. The gospel is to be our only gospel. And when we find our hope and our desires met in ways that he forbids, or when we put our ultimate hope or our trust or our real functional peace in good things even that he gives such that they become our greatest peace and our greatest longing, and when they go away, we have no peace and we have no hope it provokes his jealousy. But when we fight the fight of faith in Jesus, when we fight to keep our hope in him and depend on his grace to follow him, not our strength, when we flee self-hate, self-condemnation and put our hope in his righteousness, when we give ourselves to him in praise and in prayer, in loving obedience, we're living out our marriage to our husband. We're living out our spiritual faithfulness to our husband, Redeemer. And it gives him delight. It fulfills his jealous longings for us. Last night, we sang as a family to God. We, by God's grace, you know, we'll... we'll I won't go into the history of all that, but I just want to say last night as we were singing with the kids and my kids are back there, they remember this, I just stopped. And I just said, after reviewing this text, I just said, do you guys know, do you guys understand that God loves this? Like he longs for us to sing to him. Like these texts that I've been looking at in Ezekiel and James, they woke me up to the fact that God jealously longs for my devotion. He jealously longs for your worship. He's not up there indifferent. He's not up there in some ivory tower in a professor's office saying, did they praise me today? Thank you. You know, he's, he's, he's here right now saying, long for me, hope in me, worship me. And it matters to him. If it grieves him when we don't, It gives him joy when we do. Second, one flesh oneness is to be lasting oneness because Jesus is eternally faithful to us. One flesh oneness is to be lasting oneness because Jesus is eternally faithful to us. In Genesis 2, it says of a husband, a man shall leave his wife. I'm sorry, a man shall leave. (laughs) No, it does not. (laughs) A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. There was no letting go. There was to be no letting go while Eve breathed. Adam was to be there each day, each morning, each evening. She was to be the the last thing he saw when he laid down. She was to be the first thing he saw when he woke up. Similarly, the wife is bound her whole life to her husband. Now what we'll talk about, there, there are reasons why a marriage can be ended. It's a terrible thing, but it is there. But that is not God's intention. And 1 Corinthians 7, we'll go there in a few weeks specifically. We'll get into that weed. Paul says in verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. This is God's intention for marriage. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Listen, till death do us part. Man didn't make that up. It's an expression of the divine will for marriage so that Christ's undying commitment to you would be portrayed in marriage. Did you hear that? In Jeremiah 31, God proclaims Israel's unfaithfulness again to the covenant. And he says that she did this, quote, though I was a husband to them. But he announces that there is a day coming when he will make a new covenant, a covenant that will never end because it's rooted in something that never ends. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to. My faithfulness to you. I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you, and again I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. See, Jesus does not marry us and leave us. Using the most tender and caring words, only a betrothed husband would say to his bride. Jesus says to his frightened disciples in John 14, listen to what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. These are nice words as we read them in English, but their deeper meaning is very likely referring to the Jewish culture and the Jewish way of life in which a betrothal period meant temporary separation between a promised husband and a promised wife. A husband and wife were legally promised to each other. It wasn't like our engagement period. They really were legally husband and wife. But before they had sexual intimacy, before the honeymoon. There was a long period in which the husband would go and work on building and securing a home for his new bride. It might have been a a new room in his father's house. Jesus alludes to many rooms in my father's house. There's going to be a room for us. But he would go and he'd get it ready for her. It, It might mean that he'd have to build a whole house with his friends from scratch. But he would go and he'd prepare protection and provision and safety and sanctuary for her. And it could take months And then when it was all done, he'd come back with his friends. And it was a custom to make a loud shout. Jen! Our house is ready! Jen went to Europe while I prepared a rehearsal dinner and wedding and bought a house. I mean, I did actually, but... But he, with a loud shout, he comes back for her. Jesus uses this analogy with his disciples, not to refer to physical intimacy, but what physical intimacy is pointing to. His faithfulness, his husbandly commitment to his church. Even if he has to go away, he's saying right now, even if I'm going away, it's not to leave you, but to prepare our home, prepare our dwelling for an eternity where I will provide for you, protect you, love you, and be faithful to you. In Revelation 21, John sees the day when our marriage to our husband-redeemer will be fully complete and consummated. John, in Revelation 21, John says these words. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then an angel tells John what the identity of this city is. He says, The city is the bride the wife of the lamb. Do you know who the bride, the wife of the lamb is? It's you. It's you. It's you. He's preparing. He's preparing an eternity of provision, security, safety, joy, hope, ecstasy, peace, happiness for you. We talked about this last week, didn't we? Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Our Redeemer husband, though, has never really left us. And he will never leave us. He is with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit. And even though gone physically, we know we will see him again face to face even as we have him in our hearts now his commitment to us never ends and that's why one flesh sexual oneness finds its only right fulfillment in a marriage covenant in which a husband and a wife give themselves to each other alone and only in a lifelong commitment of oneness and i know I'm, i i i know you i love you guys i know some of you guys have suffered the loss of this or suffered the functional decay of it but you're not going to suffer the loss of it with Christ Jesus and your marriage as poor as it might be is not the end of marriage it's not pointing to itself thank God right it might be doing a bad job of reflecting but the reflection what it's supposed to be reflecting is loses nothing because of this Lastly, one flesh oneness is to be loving oneness because Jesus' every act towards us is love. Exclusive and lifelong faithfulness, they are expressions of love. They are expressions of love. But you can be exclusive. You cannot cheat on your wife. You can be faithful. You cannot divorce your wife in in that respect. But without love, it's not what God intends it to be. Perhaps the most famous text for husbands, many of you guys probably know it by heart. It's found, you wives probably know it by heart. It's found in Ephesians 5. Husbands, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He saved her with the gospel. He's making her holy so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, since it's its own body, since you're one flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Of course, this is the greatest portrayal of marriage between a man and a woman. Greatest call. But what I want to point, here, point to here is that in speaking, in this context of, of headship and submission in marriage, it's a larger context of this little section in Ephesians 5. Paul's talking about roles, but he's not trying to make it about roles. He's trying to make it about God. Paul is really concerned that roles be lived out in a particular way. Because of who God is. Paul is concerned about the kind of headship, the kind of role a husband takes to himself because God's glory is at stake. The husband's headship is to be a headship for the sake of his wife. It is to be sacrificial. It is to be nourishing. It is to be cherishing. And again and again, Paul explains why in this passage. Because that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does for his bride. He loves her. He cherishes her. He nourishes her. He washes her. He feeds her. He protects her. He gave himself up for her. And that's what he continues to do at God's right hand this morning, right now, for you. He continues giving himself up for you as he spends his whole eternal life interceding for you. Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8 tell us he's at the right hand of God right now, husbanding you, protecting you, preserving you. Interceding for you. Yes, we believe in the authority of husbands in our church because the Bible teaches that. But authority exercised outside of love will never receive God's blessing because it perverts and lies about Jesus. To my own rebuke, I need to be reminded again and again that a Christian's husband's first instinct should never be authority, but sacrificial love. And any authority or leadership a husband exerts, void of love, is stealing from God. You're stealing the mantle of headship and using it for yourself, using it for myself instead of for him. And you're calling God's discipline on yourself. This is why 1 Peter 3 warns husbands not to refuse honor and compassion to their wives, lest their prayers to God be ineffective. This is why God says to cold-hearted husbands in Malachi 3 who were abandoning their wives, listen to his heart for the wife. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God's not just trying to make me a good boy. He's telling me to love my wife because this is the kind of husband Jesus is to me. And marriage is not first for me. It's first for him. And he treats me as a good husband. He covers my shame. Shame. He gives of himself. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. couple of points for application as we end here. Everyone here who belongs to Jesus Christ is married to him right now. If you're single, you have a marriage. If you're divorced, you have a marriage. If you're mistreated by your husband or your wife in ways that functionally crush you, You have a marriage that is real and pure and good. And every marriage on earth is, to greater and lesser degrees, simply a reflection of the true marriage. God didn't invent marriage on earth with humans and then say, oh, I think maybe I'll try to get married to the church and then I'll use that Adam and Eve metaphor as a good... No, 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 it starts with the real marriage God and his creation. Christ and his bride. Everyone here who belongs to Christ is married to him. You are one spirit with him. So I just want to come back over these three things, these three points. Just to ask you to think. God's union with us is to be an exclusive union. He is to be your only God. Are there lesser gods which aren't really gods who have become your central god right now? Money, pleasure, entertainment, work, even good things. Are they crowding him out? Are there obviously forbidden things that are crowding him out? On the other hand, do you know he's jealous for you? Do you know he's jealous for you? Do you know he longs for you? When you sit down to pray before him, do you think he's cold and indifferent? Do you think he's standing with his hands folded on the other side of the boxing ring, waiting to see if you have what it takes and could go 10 rounds with his holiness today? And or do you know that he longs for you? that he rejoices in your devotion to him, that he loves to hear you sing to him. More than any earthly husband would delight in his wife, God longs to delight in you. And that's why he made delight between partners, because it's a picture of the delight he wants to receive and does receive from our worship and he wants to give us. And we'll talk more about that next week as we talk about delight and pleasure and joy. Secondly, God's union with us is an everlastingly faithful union. He will never leave you. Does your heart hold on to this hope? Do you have this hope? Do you treat Jesus as one who is always faithful to you, who is always there? Do you run to him and worry? Do you seek him? in your needs? Do you depend on him for strength? Everything we've said today in marriage, he's saying, I'm your husband, I'm faithful, I'm your provider, I'm your protector, I'm your security. Do you hope in him as the Savior who will be faithful to keep you to the end? One of the greatest ways we persevere to the end is by putting our hope in God preserving us to the end. There's no greater way we hang in there with God as a Christian than believe, put our hope in him hanging on to us. Lastly, God's union with us is a lovingly sacrificial union. His every attitude and action towards you is loving and for your good. Do you believe right now that your husband redeemer is working out all things, even your suffering for your good? He calls you to. He argues from the greater to the lesser. He says to you, if I poured out my very blood for you, if I poured out everything in me for you, if I took everything I could take in your sin and died for it and destroyed it for you, if my Father gave the greatest treasure in the universe for you, am I not going to help you with fill in the blank? With unemployment, with disease, with marriage, with... Hopeless with, you know, am I not going to sustain you and be with you and help you? He, he wants you to fight for faith in his love for you and his faithfulness to you. Are you asking him to show you that he will be faithful? Calling, Lord, be true to your word. Help me see that again. Are you thinking of him and going to him throughout your day as one who loves you and is for you? And and brothers and sisters, I'm preaching to myself. It's one of the gifts of being able to preach. I, I have to go through this in my own heart. He is our husband redeemer. The greatest romance stories you ever see or ever hear about in movies Whatever kernel of good is in them, and there's, some of them have a lot of good in them, and some of them are trash, and they don't have much good at all. But, but every element, every aspect of desire romantically, just like the heavens proclaim the glory of God, so does pride and prejudice. So does sleepless in Seattle. So do your dreams for the perfect husband and the perfect wife. They're trying to tell you a greater story. They're trying to sing to you about a greater song. The song of your husband, Redeemer. He loves you. He's faithful to you to the end. We can put our hope in him. Married, divorced, single, struggling. We have a husband, Redeemer, who is all that we could hope for in a husband or in a marriage partner. Could I ask the band to come up here? We're going to sing one more song to him and rejoice in his love.